you have a Bible with you, you can turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. We're continuing our series, Living, Waiting, and Enduring for Jesus. We find ourselves this morning in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. We're going to close out the third chapter of this epistle that Paul wrote to a church in a town called Thessalonica. And uh, we're going to read verses 11, 12, and 13 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. Where Paul is now going to actually give an actual prayer. Verse 11. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all of his saints. Well, as we begin to get into this passage of scripture, uh, it reminded me of, of my own prayer life. We've, Paul is constantly including prayers in his epistles. And they're examples to us, uh, perhaps... You're like so many that when it comes to your prayer life, uh, you, you feel like your prayer makes it to the ceiling and that's about as far as it goes before it drops to the floor. Maybe off time in your prayer, you feel like you're just talking to the wall and you're not really sure if there's any, if God's even listening. Many times perhaps you sit down to pray, but you can't think of what to pray for. You can't think of what to do. And so you just pray the same old things about the same old things and prayer just begins to get a little boring, it gets a little monotonous, and it just becomes seemingly futile and a, almost a complete waste of time. And if you're a Christian and that's you, I want you to know you're normal. I want you to know if, you, if, that's, if you're a Christian and that's you, you're not a second-class Christian. Sometimes we need guidance on how to pray and what to say when we pray. And, 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 and passages like this where Paul actually gives us a prayer can really help us know how we, how we should pray for others. Now, the Apostle Paul here has been in a, the spirit of prayer throughout this whole letter. From chapter 1, verse 2, chapter 2, verse 13, chapter 3, 9, and 10. He's constantly thanking God and talking about how he's praying to God. And so now he's going to record an actual prayer that he's praying for the, the Thessalonian church. And this prayer is a prayer of concern for their spirituality. And we may even wonder why, why he would pray such a prayer, or why he would even be that concerned about their spirituality. I mean, after all, we've already gone through, now it will be a full three chapters in this book. And we've already learned that they're, the member from chapter one, they're the model church. This is the church that Paul does not use the, the word for any other church. This is the model church. In chapter 1. In chapter 2, we learn that they received God's word. Paul says, I, I thank God for you because when you heard the word of God, you actually received it like it was, the word of God. And then in chapter 3, where he learned uh, it, last week, remember, Timothy comes back with the news and he says, they're standing firm in the faith. So here's a model church that is receiving the word of God as the word of God. They're standing firm in the faith and here Paul is praying a prayer for their spirituality. Why would Paul do that? Why would Paul be concerned about that? 
Well, here's the reason why. And I think it's pretty simple. It doesn't matter how far you've progressed in the Christian life or how long you've been a Christian. We're all prone to sin. And no one reaches glorification in this world. And so Paul knew, number one, they were prone to sin. As a matter of fact, next week we're going we're gonna to jump right into the deep end where Paul says, okay, now concerning some things that are going on in the church, and, we're gonna, and, he, and he gets right into their, their sexual immorality. And so Paul knows, he knows that they still have room to grow, they're still prone to sin. That they haven't reached full glorification, they haven't reached full perfection in this world. So Paul's concerned for them. And that's what it should be for all Christians. All Christians should, at all times, have concern for their own spirituality as well as the spirituality of other Christians and others as a whole, all people. We'll look at that in a minute. So as we look at this passage, I want to I do two things. And number one is kind of what I already mentioned when I, when, I, when I portrayed the prayer life of many of us. Is I want the word of God to teach you how to pray. I want the word of God to treat, teach you how to pray for your brothers and sisters in Christ. And this passage will kind of do that naturally. So I'm not necessarily going to elaborate on it. Here's the words you should pray. I think just as we walk through this, um, we're really going to kind of do the one thing that says, hey, use this passage and learn how to pray for other believers. But then the flip side of that, Paul is praying for their spiritual lives. So I also want to help all of us learn how we should live in a way that pleases God. So I I want to use God's word to show you how to live in a way that pleases the Lord. I want you to be concerned about your spirituality. I'm asking you to be eternally concerned about your spirituality. And I'm asking you to be concerned about the spirituality of your brothers and sisters in Christ and those who don't know Christ. Because there aren't any places, there aren't many places you can go to find somebody who's cared about your spirituality. TV shows don't, Hollywood doesn't, celebrities don't, musicians don't. Don't care. There's nowhere you can go. Where are you going to go for uh, someone to learn and care for your spiritual life? Well, God has called the church to care. God has called the church to care. And by God's grace, we will care. The Apostle John prayed in 3 John chapter 2 he says beloved now listen to this he says beloved I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul now think about that I pray that all may go well with you your physical health and that you may be you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul what is what is the apostle John praying there he's another prayer of concern for their spirituality but really what he's saying is if God took your physical health and he matched it with your spiritual health, how physically healthy would you be? And so, John, God wants you to care about your your spiritual health. And just like Paul is praying, and just like John prayed, he wants you to care about the spiritual health of others as well. So we're going to jump into this passage. And just as a parenthetical note here, Slides went bye-bye, and so there are going to be no slides up there, and so you're just going to have to do well to, to listen, and I'll try to, try to make sure I, I uh, give the points properly. So um, no PowerPoint slides today, so you're just going to have to look at me the whole time. So that's, uh, that's what we're going to have to do. I apologize in advance. <clears throat> so God wants us to care about the spirituality of others 
And there are three petitions to make on behalf of your brothers and sisters in Christ. And Paul, uh, he prays uh, three things. Number one, he prays that they would, number one, see and savor the sovereign care of God. He prays that they would see and savor the sovereign care of God. That's verse 11. See and savor the sovereign care of God. Now notice what Paul says in verse 11. He says, may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. Now, Paul is asking God to direct their way to the church in Thessalonica. Now, to understand this, the NIV actually, the NIV, uh, the New International Version, actually translate this, translates this verse pr- very well. The, the NIV puts it like this. Now, may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus clear the way, clear the way for us to come to you. And that's literally, the, that's, that's, that's the literal meaning behind this word. Paul is going to God, and he's, he's, he's asking God to clear the way, to remove obstacles. And, and, and it's even the idea of making, making the road level after it's kind of been dug up and, and messed up and broken up. Now, why would Paul use this word? Because if you remember back in chapter 2, verse 18, remember what it says about Satan, where Paul says, I, I wanted to come to you again and again, but Satan hindered us. And if you remember, quiz time, that word hindered literally means to break up the road. It it, it was a word used that that they would break up the road so that the the soldiers wouldn't be able to travel on it, so they wouldn't be able to get to the battle. And so Paul is saying, God, would you clear the road that Satan has broken up? Paul understood that God was more powerful than Satan and could repair whatever road Satan had dug up. That God could throw Satan, and even if he didn't really fix the road, he could throw Satan in the ditch and remove all obstacles. But notice where Paul goes. He goes straight to God. Paul goes straight to God. This whole prayer is about the sovereignty of God. I mean, I mean, not only in verse 11, but in verse 12, he says, he says, may our God. And then verse 12, he says, now may the Lord make you increase. Verse 13, may he establish you. So he is constantly going to God, which is why we've titled this, Praying in the Sovereignty of God. And Paul knew that whatever Satan was allowed to do was only by God's permission. We learn that from Job chapter 1, 2 Corinthians 12. And he knew that God would one day defeat Satan. God is the great Satan crusher. He threw Satan out of heaven like lightning when sin was found in him. He disarmed and defeated Satan with the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, proving once for all that Satan is not the ultimate power in this world. He's not its final ruler. That Although Satan may be a prince, he isn't the king. And Satan is allowed to operate within God's purposes for now, but his ultimate destination is the lake of fire for all eternity. And Paul was confident that although there were times when Satan was allowed to break up the road, to put obstacles in the way, that even Christians, that there were times when God would give Christians the opportunity even to crush him under our feet. Romans chapter 16 verse 20 has an interesting verse where maybe you're familiar with this verse where Paul tells the Roman Christians, he says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. 
Now think about that. When it comes to Satan, God says the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. They would have moments where they would be used by God to crush Satan. Now how is that? If you looked at the context of Romans chapter 16, it was really really those moments in which the truth of God would triumph over false doctrine. Satan is crushed when his plans to deceive with false doctrine are triumphed over by God and his word. So Paul saw the sovereign care of God over Satan, over all circumstances, but it's important to notice the word father here. Because he says, now may may our God and Father. He doesn't just say God. Because he brings the word Father into this. The reason why I I put point number one as see and savor the sovereign care of God. It's because, he, yes, he is a sovereign God and he always will be. But he is a sovereignly caring Father. God isn't just a sovereign God. he's, he's, He's caring for us every step of the way. Now, the Heidelberg Catechism of 1563 uh, talks about that God so governs the world that herbs and grass, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, meat and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty. Indeed, all things come not by chance, but it says this, by his fatherly hand. I love that. It comes from a fatherly hand. It comes from a hand that cares, a hand that loves a hand that is tender and there to support and give help and courage. And Paul is stressing to the Thessalonians, uh, this Thessalonian church, that God is God, but he's also Father. He cares. He loves. And this is why Charles Spurgeon says, he says, when you go through a trial, the sovereignty of God is the pillow upon which to lay your head. Now, we've all banged our heads trying to get our reason to reach high enough to understand God's sovereignty. Last I checked, it hasn't worked for anybody. But instead of God's sovereignty being a reason to bang your head on the wall, have you ever tried letting it be the pillow upon which you rest your head? He goes to God, his Father. He goes to the Lord Jesus May our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. See and savor the sovereign care of God. If you don't know who Jesus is, you should know that he is the second person in the Trinity. He's God. He has always existed. He always will exist. And eternity past, God the Father planned a way for his creation, which he would eventually create and would eventually rebel against him. To be redeemed and forgiven for the rebellion against him. Now his plan was to send God the Son, Jesus Christ, to the world through the virgin birth of a Jewish teenager. And she was going to name him Jesus. He would live in sinless perfection as God. But he would grow up like any other little boy. He would work like any other Jewish man. But then he would begin to show himself to be God by performing miracles, casting out demons, forgiving people. But however, God in flesh would be despised and rejected again by his creation. They would nail him to the cross. And God's plan, joyfully agreed upon by the Lord Jesus, was poured out. And on the cross, the wrath of God was poured out on the Lord Jesus. He would die, he would be buried, he would rise from the dead. And now, anyone who believes in Jesus could have all their sins forgiven. Wrath totally removed. 
and Jesus ascended into heaven until right now. And the reason why Paul says our Lord Jesus is because Jesus did ascend into heaven, and right now he is Lord over all. And one day he will return, and all of his enemies, those who did not believe in the gospel, will be cast out. They'll be made his footstool. He'll get rid of them once and for all, and he will spend an endlessly joyous eternity with those who believe the gospel. And so do you see why Paul would call us to see and savor the sovereign care of God? And that's one thing we can pray for one another. And one thing is to ask ourselves, do you, do I see and savor the sovereign care of God? There's another thing he puts here. Not only do we pray that we would see and savor the sovereign care of God, but also, verse 12 that we would increase and abound in love for all people. The second thing Paul prays for is that they would increase and abound in love for all people. Increase and abound in love for all people. So Paul again asks that God here would do the work, right? So verse 12, and may the Lord make you increase. So Paul is asking God to do his work in their lives, that they might increase and abound in love for one another and for all. And as one commentator put it, it would be Jesus who would, who would infuse them with this love. If you have your Bibles open, you can look at chapter 4, verse 9. Because so, so, so important to understand this. In, in chapter 9 of verse 4, if you look there, Paul says, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. Notice this in verse 9 of chapter 4. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. That's just astounding to me. When Paul looks at their love, he says, it's, it's as if you've been taught by God. Now, there's this, there's this kind of new thing going on, and maybe you've seen advertise, advertisements for it, but it's called, it's called Master Class. And it's another subscription-based thing, and maybe you've seen it advertised on Facebook or something like that. But the idea is, you pay for this subscription, and you get access to, to hundreds of classes, or over 100 classes, where you get the opportunity to be taught by the world's best. So Gordon Ramsay teaches cooking. Steve Martin teaches comedy. Steph Curry teaches shooting a basketball. Rain, Wayne Gretzky teaches hockey. Penn and Teller teach magic. And then famed FBI hostage negotiator Chris Voss teaches the art of negotiating. Because that will come in real handy uh, for you as we all face. I had some jokes here I was going to make about uh, church business meetings. Uh, We're going to forego that. (laughs) I've already signed up for the class. Can't wait to see you here tonight. You know, but here it is. You could be taught by the world's best. And while it's unique and great to be able to be taught by the world's best, best, there's nothing like being taught by God. There's n- and by the way, I looked through all those classes. There's no master class on loving people. And even if there was, it would fall way short. Because God is the one who teaches us how to love. Love starts with God. But when it comes to being taught by God how to love, it's not a matter of just simply sitting and learning. It's about experiencing. 1 John 4.19, we love because he first loved us. 
Romans 5, 8. But God shows his love, his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In the, in the description of the negotiating class by Chris Voss, it, it says in there, like, the goal of the class, at, the, at the, the last sentence says, get more of what you want out of life. Get more what you want. We're going to teach you, and this, this famed FBI hostage negotiator, he's going to teach you how to, how to work your words so you get, what you get more of what you want out of life. And if that's your attitude, that you just are trying to figure out how you can get what you want out of life, then you need to go to the master's class on love. And I say, if that's your attitude, but I have to look at myself and say, well, so many times that's my attitude. Love starts with God, and here Paul is saying, and, and so he's, he's praying that they would increase and abound in love. Now, it's really kind of hard to measure love, because the word he used here is actually a word for amount, like it would increase in amount. It carries the idea of there being more and more and more. That's what the word increase, but then he, he uses the word abound. And so he's like saying that more and more and more and more love until you're just overflowing with it. That word abound is the same word used in Matthew chapter 14, where Jesus feed the fi- feeds the 5,000. Afterwards, they collect all the baskets, and it says there were, there were 12 baskets left over. Same word, same Greek word. It was like there was so much. It could have just kept going. It Jesus, you know, could have kept pouring. It, it was abounding. There was plenty for everybody, plus some left over. And so Paul is saying, I want your love to increase and increase and increase and just start overflowing to where you just, you just run out of ways to show love to people. He wants them to increase in their love to the point where there isn't an end, where there aren't any more qualifications on your love. He's saying, I want you to get to the point where you're just so overflowing in love that there are no longer demands for anyone to receive your love. Where there are no longer conditions on which people must meet to receive your love. Paul is saying, I want all this to happen. No more qualifications, no more demands, no more conditions. Look at your look at your marriage, look at your closest relationship. You have qualifications, you got demands you got to meet before sacrificial service kicks in, before self-denying love kicks in for other people. Consider the love you've received from God. His love is poured out on us simply by receiving his gift by faith. God did not give you a list of demands to meet in order to receive his love. And if he did... We'd all be in big trouble because we wouldn't be able to meet the demands. We'd never be able to meet his demands. And maybe that's why we put demands on our love. Because we know that nobody will ever be able to meet our demands and therefore we don't have to love people. Because they haven't met the demands. They haven't quite deserved it yet. It's not what God did. He didn't put any qualifications or conditions. He simply said, come to me and I will give you rest. 
He simply said, I will love you if you receive this free gift by faith. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. And so Paul is just saying this love should just increase and increase and increase and increase until it's overflowing and abounding. And this church that Paul is writing to, he even said, like we read in verse 9, he says, Now concerning brotherly love, you don't have anyone to write to you. For you've been taught by God to love one another. And here he is praying, keep it going. Now love always has an object. We're to love God first and foremost and then love others. The problem is we get our love misappropriated. Okay, we all love something or some things. We're all made to love. We're all made to set our affections on something. But Jesus says you can't serve two masters. If you're going to love money, you can't love Jesus. You're going to love power, fame. You're going to love possessions. You're going to love food or anything else you might be addicted to. If you love all that stuff, you, you can't love Jesus. Because you're going you're to love the one and hate the other. So you either love God primarily and all other loves appropriate from that, or you love something else and you hate God. So for every single person, there's three things going on in your life. You have the lover, which is you. You have the thing being loved, which is you fill in the blank, whatever it is you love most. And then love if I could put it this way, it's almost, it's almost the force that drives you to that object. And the more we love something, the more time, energy, and think space, the more thoughts, the more it consumes our thoughts. And Paul is saying that experiencing God's love and loving God will overflow to love for others. That cherishing the God of love changes the objects of our love. Because if you don't love God first and primarily, if you don't love the Lord Jesus, you will end up loving something he created more than him. And Augustine, I liked how he put the, the, the early church father, Augustine, he said it's like, it's like, a, it's like a bride who loves, who loves the ring more than she loves the husband. And that's so often what we do. God gives us a nice shiny ring. Gives us all these things in this world. And we go and we love the ring and we completely stiff arm the husband. Paul is saying, listen, this love, love for God is going to overflow. It's going to overflow. Notice what he says here. May you increase in love for one another. That's for Christians. Jesus says in John 13, 35 that that the, the, the Christian community, the followers of Jesus will be known, will be marked by a love for one another. John 13, 35. So that's what's going to mark the Christian community. That's what's going to mark a Christian, their love for one another. Now, by contrast, the Pharisees were marked by something else completely. Remember, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 23, he says, The Pharisees, they do all their deeds to be seen by others. That's what marks them. They want to be seen by others. He says they make their phylacteries broad. If you're like, what is a phylactery? Very simply, a phylactery is a box that holds four passages from the Old Testament and when Jesus says they make them broad, it's like this idea. It's like they've got this, and it's either placed on your head or on your arm. And they wear it around so that when they pray or when they want to worship, they just, you know, take the scriptures out and there it is. And Jesus is saying these guys, they, they want to be seen. They're making these things nice and big. They're stuffing as much scripture in there so that people can see, man, these, these guys, they're the spiritual ones. 
Jesus says they love the place of honor at the feast, and they love the best seats in the synagogues. They love the greetings in the marketplaces, and they love being called rabbi by others. That's what marked them. Jesus never said the Pharisees were marked by love for other people. As a matter of fact, he said they're marked by a love or a hate, a hate for other people. Like the blind leading the blind and just making people twice as fit for hell because of how they're acting. We ought to be careful what marks us as a church. Because we may unknowingly be making people twice as fit for hell. If our primary love is not first of all for the Lord Jesus and then for one another. But he doesn't just say for Christians. He says for all. It's for unbelievers. And this would include their enemies, by the way. Remember the people, they were, they were facing persecution in Thessalonica. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5? He says, I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father. Like the best way to give people a picture of the Heavenly Father is to love our enemies. Because while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's what God did for us. He had a love for all, all unbelievers. Now, Paul had this love, and Paul devoted his entire life to this love. Now, just think about in the world in that, in that time, and in the world today, there are millions and millions and millions and millions, tens of millions of people who are completely unconcerned about the eternal destiny of other people. I think Paul understood that. He understood the grace he had been shown by the Lord Jesus. He understood that he had been transferred from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of the beloved son of Jesus Christ. And he realized that there's nobody in that ancient pagan world. I mean, not nobody, but there's very few people who are concerned about the eternal destiny of the, Thessalonian, of the Thessalonians. Of those who live in Philippi. Of those who live in Corinth of those who live in Galatia and Asia Minor and all those other places, he says there's nobody who's, who, can, who has any concern for them. And so Paul is telling this church, listen, let your love, yes, be amongst one another, but don't just leave it there. Be concerned about the eternal destiny of others. That, that was Paul. That was the church at Thessalonica. Is it you? There's one final prayer request here. It's in verse 13. So number one, he prays, and we can pray for one another, and we ought to, as we live our lives, see and savor the sovereign care of God. And we ought to pray for one another, and in our own lives, increase and abound in love for all people. And number three, from verse 13, he prayed that they would live in light of Christ's return. Live in light of Christ's return. It says, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all of his saints. All his holy ones, maybe your translation says. Holiness, living in light of Christ's return. Our flesh is bent against holiness. And so Paul is bringing the heart into the picture. It's like the, it's like the worst thing ever to happen to me is when my heart gets brought into the picture. Because on the outside, I can do pretty good about covering it up. But when it gets down to just bringing my heart into the picture on things, that's where things get ugly. Because even as followers of Jesus, we're still 
that our heart in its, in its natural way is still bent against holiness. Now, what is the heart? The heart is your control center, the control center of your desires, your emotions, your will, your actions. Jesus says in Mark chapter 7, he says, from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come within and they defile a person. So our heart is the control center. It's where everything we do in life comes out of. You know that from Proverbs 4. Guard your heart with all diligence, for from it flows the springs of life. The heart is the place where we find out why we do what we do, why we say what we say, why we desire what we desire, why we feel what we feel. And we can't follow our hearts because, again, the very nature of our hearts is opposed to do what the Holy Spirit wants to do. Romans 7, Paul talks about the battle inside. Our hearts, by nature, are dead in sin. But in Christ, we are dead to sin. Our hearts, by nature, teach us to love ourselves. In Christ, we are taught to deny ourselves. Our hearts, by nature, teach us to look out only for our own interests. And, you know, like, like the Chris Voss class, you know, figure out how you can get what you want out of life. In Christ, we are taught to consider the needs of others as more important than our own. Our hearts, by nature, consider faith, hope, and love as unnecessary mysteries. In Christ, we are taught that these are the essence of our Christian lives. So you can see how this is just constantly opposed to each other. The Christian life is one of having a new master of the Lord Jesus, but there's always that battle within us against holiness. And the Lord Jesus pours out his Holy Spirit to dwell in us, and we can progress towards eternal glory by fighting our sinful flesh, by deepening our love for Jesus along the way. But we're not perfect until we get to glory. You know what the word holiness means? Holiness simply means to be set apart by God from sin for his purposes. And so when he says blameless in holiness, like Paul is saying, like Christians live in the realm of holiness. If you're a Christian, you, you have been set apart by God, for God, for his purposes, set apart from sin, for his purposes. That's kind of the realm in which you live. So Paul is praying here that they would be blameless. So that, so that there, wouldn't be, there wouldn't be any charges that, that would stick. And it's interesting here that notice the first words of verse 13, after he says, increase and abound in love for one another and for all, he says, so that you can be blameless. So that you can be blameless in holiness. So Paul is arguing there's no way to be, to be blameless in holiness without loving others. If God's love hasn't caused love for others, then holiness is impossible. Because we'll only love ourselves. There can be no blameless in holiness where love for self reigns. And so holiness is established as an outflow of Christian love. So here's what this means. This means that our love for other Christians, our brothers and sisters in Christ, and our love for unbelievers tells us a whole lot more about our holiness than we may have ever thought it did. Because there's coming a day. He wants them to be blameless in holiness before God at the coming of the Lord Jesus with all the saints. There's coming a day when two things are going to happen for the Christian. 
One, you're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And you're going to face your works. Now notice what? You're not going to face your sin. Your sin is out of the picture. As far as these is from the west, so far as the Lord cast our sins from us. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But you will face your works. Make no doubt about it. And the degree to which we have obtained a blameless and holy life on this earth will be ascertained when we stand and face our works. That's the first thing. We're going to stand before God and we're going to face our works. And sure, there will be some, there will be some sort of sorrow when we see perhaps how much time we wasted or, or you know, how, much, how much opportunities we wasted. But we're going to face our works. But the second thing is, after we face our works, God is going to invite us into his kingdom and we're going to be glorified. On that day when our works are judged, we will have the confidence that we will never be rejected because our sins are out of the picture. And we'll be rewarded for the things that we've done and we'll, we'll be able to see everything go up in flames and see if anything we did in this life stuck for the Lord Jesus and for his glory. There are those in this room that if they died right now, whether you're on the church membership list or you're not, whether you consider yourself a religious person or you don't, there are those that if they were to die right now, they would stand before God and they would face their sins. And being spiritually dead, they would be cast from God's presence into the lake of fire for all eternity. God is willing, like we've been saying all along, to pour out his love into your heart to forgive your sins. To give you the righteousness of Jesus Christ himself. And he's not putting any demands. He's not asking for you to put your life together. He's not asking you to try to dress up your religion a little bit more. You could be, you could be a, a, a regular attender or a member of this church for 50 years. And God is saying, listen, I want you to place your faith in the Lord Jesus. To believe that the Lord Jesus died for you and rose again. And if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus, then you'll never stand before God to face your sins, but you will stand before God to face your works. And I think a lot of our works are going to come down to, to this question. Do you, did you care about your own spirituality, and what did that motivate you to do? And did you care about the spirituality of your, your brothers and sisters in Christ? Did you care about the eternal destiny of those who are lost? And so may we all see and savor the sovereignty of God. May we all increase and abound in love for all people. And may we all live in light of the Lord Jesus' return. Let's pray. Lord, I, I pray that just from your word. Lord, this is going to be a simple prayer. Lord, whether sorrow or sin or temptation or hurt, trials abounding in the lives of the people this morning, may we all see and savor the sovereign care of you, Lord. Lord, cause us all to increase and abound in love for all people. And Lord, may we all live in light of Christ's return. In Jesus' name, amen.